Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Let's get into the word this morning. I'm gonna, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna preach on something totally different on relationships, uh, but just before service, I thought, my goodness, we need to, we need to touch on marriage. So I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three. Now, those of you that know your Bible are gonna say, wait a minute, Pastor, are you serious? You're gonna use the scripture on the fall of man as your template for marriage? I mean, what are you thinking here? I'm reminded of Norm Winnig. Norm has gone to be with the Lord, but Norm used to tell about a young man. He saw this girl and he said, she is the ideal. And uh, so he uh, married her and it became an ordeal and then he wanted a new deal. And uh, uh, man, that is the perfect little outline for redemptive history. God gave us the ideal. We messed it up became an ordeal and Jesus brought the new deal. Uh, and we need to know how to apply redemption to marriage. Uh, any subject you're going to study, any, any subject that you want to really get your hands around, scripturally speaking, you need to look at it through at least three, if not four lenses. The first lens is original intention. What did God originally intend, intend for that subject? And this morning it's going to be marriage and romance and, and uh, relationship with the opposite gender. Uh, what was God's original intention? Then we need to look at how did the fall affect that? So what was in creation? What did God do in the fall? How did the fall affect that subject? And so we see uh, in the beginning how God created man and woman, brought them together, and God had an intention. We also know that sin, the fall, greatly affected this subject. And if we don't understand that, you'll understand it once you get married. Okay, you'll, you'll see, whoa, the fall came into play here. And so then we also need to understand, I should have got a bigger laugh out of that, man. I, I'm glad, otherwise you guys, I'm glad my wife isn't here to hear that. I must have said it wrong. So my wife is very sick, so be praying for her. She's, she's got that, whatever that bug is going around. So, uh, so we have God's original intention, the effects of the fall, and then the effects of redemption. How do we cooperate with what God did at the cross and allow that redemption to bleed into our marriages and to our families? How do we cooperate? There is an application of redemption in your marriage, and you need to cooperate with it. You need to impose the effects of the cross into your marriage. And we're going to hopefully get to that this morning. And so we want to look at uh, this whole subject because it's very, very important. It's the most fundamental human relationship you will have. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the relationship. I pray, God, that you would anoint us. Lord, help my mind this morning. Uh, Lord, just to flow with what you want to say to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read in Genesis chapter 3. Well, matter of fact, let's start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Uh, we know that the original text didn't have the chapter breaks. And Moses, it's the, the, the common uh, thought is that Moses wrote Genesis. Uh, and so chapter or verse 25, it says, Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. And if you're from Missouri, it's naked. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. 
In the Hebrew, that is A-R-O-M, Arom, A-R-O-M. And then the very next verse, he says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And so there's a play on words. The word crafty is Arum, A-R-U-M. It's in the English transliteration. So uh, the serpent was Arum and Adam and Eve were Arum. And so it's this play on words that whereas the enemy was crafty, he was manipulative. He was, he was trying to, he was holding things back to manipulate behavior. Adam and Eve, what you saw is what you got. They were naked. And it was more than a physical nakedness. There was an emotional, spiritual nakedness that they were open with one another and they felt no shame. And what causes us to withdraw from relationship, what causes us to hide things, what causes us to become crafty like the enemy and try to manipulate. In other words, we, orchestra, we behave in such a way as to elicit behavior in someone else. That's, that's manipulative. What causes that is the shame of the fall. And so he says, uh, now let's go back to uh, chapter 2. Look at, uh, look at verse... Let's look at verse 19. No, no, verse 18, I'm sorry. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, we need to reverse engineer this thing called marriage. If you really want to know why, how marriage is supposed to work, look at its inception. What was God after in the inception or when he divided man out of woman? So here's the, here's the principle. God saw man's need before man saw his own need. And that is always the case. That is not a principle that's isolated to this, this scenario where God created a woman. God always sees your need. And he, what he will do is he will orchestrate events to bring that to a conscious level in your own life. All of us, when, we've, when we came to the Lord, it wasn't like I knew I needed Jesus, but God was gracious enough to weave events to bring that to a conscious level till I realized, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I need God. And that's exactly what's going on here. So God saw a need that Adam was oblivious to. Adam didn't know he had a need, so God was going to weave events to bring that to the surface. And then Adam was going to pursue the solution to his own need, to which he would come to the end of himself. And then God, out of his desperation, out of Adam's desperation, God would present him the answer to his need. It's really, in this picture, it's a picture of how redemption works, how God works in a man's life. He sees a need you don't see. He will work events to show you your need. Then you will try to fulfill your own need and you will come to the end of yourself. You cannot fill your own need. And then out of your own desperation, God will present to you his solution to your need. And you need to embrace it. So that's what's about to happen here. Verse 18. So God said it's not good for man to be alone. Now another principle we can derive from that little verse is this. That a relationship with God is not the only thing that you need. I know we have that song, you're all I need. And, we, you know, there's great preaching that says, you know, until he's all you have, you'll never realize that he's all you need. But the fact is, God himself said it. It wasn't good for man to be alone. 
And Adam had a real relationship with the Lord. He would hear God coming in the cool of the day. And he would hear him coming through the bushes. I don't know how that was, you know, what that looked like really, but that was pretty intense type of relationship. Man, they had an appointment every day. He would hear God coming. They would talk face to face. But that was not enough. God said it's not good that man should be alone. So what was God's solution? Look at Verse 19, now the Lord God formed out of the ground with all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. Now, if you're reading that at face value, it's, it's tempting to think uh, Moses got a little distracted. Squirrel, oh yeah, God, you know, he was over here. God is naming the animals. Now back to Adam and Eve. But this was all part of the same scenario. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. So what did he do? He paraded the animal kingdom before Adam so that Adam would realize I'm the only one without a wife here. I want relationship and I'm tempted here to, you know, I'm talking to horses and, and uh, gorillas, but nothing, nothing's really filling that void in my life. And so God was bringing to his awareness that he had a need that he didn't realize he had. And so uh, in, in your walk with God, if you think back, what God did is he brought about events to reveal the void in your heart. And often it was by bringing others that had that void filled in their heart. And you realize they have something I don't have and I have a need. It's fascinating to me. If I'm not careful, we'll, we'll get pulled into this whole thing. But So let, let's just leave it there. Now look at what he says. Ver, halfway through verse 20, it's in the next paragraph if you're reading out of the NIV. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so God had brought him to the point where there was this desire awakened in his heart. Matter of fact, the, the, in the Hebrew, it's, it's much more clear. It's, there's, there, it communicates this languid passivity that Adam had looked and looked and nothing was found. And he was, there was a sense of despair in his heart. He'd come to the end of himself. And then it says God put him to sleep. God put him in a rest. And out of his rest, his need would be met. And so we see... Verse 21, so the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to man, and the man said, whoa, man. Now he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's saying, this is... Self of my very self. I recognize myself in her. All these other beings, these creatures have passed before me and created an awareness that I'm alone, but there was nothing to meet the need. And all of a sudden he brought Eve to him. She was different, but she was the same. She was enough like him to recognize himself in her, but enough different from him for him to be attracted to her. Now, here's the crazy thing. Now, we, we, we've talked about this before, but I want to go over this ground real quick to get into some other things because this is preliminary, preliminary stuff that we need to understand. What did God do? God took something out of man, took something out of him, wrapped it in a form that man would be attracted to, 
brought it back to man and said, now become one with this thing, this woman. And that seemed like a great idea. Adam was excited about it. He was attracted to her. She was pretty. This is, they fit together physically, spiritually, and emotionally. It was a beautiful thing until they had their first argument. Because in making her separate from him, he also gave her her own separate mind, will, and emotions. And in case you guys haven't realized, gentlemen, your wife has her own opinions. And sometimes they're contrary to yours. And so there had to be this question arise within Adam's heart. If God wanted me to be one with this thing called woman, why in the world did he take her out of me in the first place? I was already one with her. We were one. But we only had one opinion, one mind, one will, one emotion. And now God takes this thing called woman out of him. He took the feminine out of the human race, out of the human being, and separated the masculine and the feminine, wrapped it in a form he was highly attracted to, presented her back to him and said, now become one. Why? It, it, the, the principle of design begs the question, why did God do it that way? God could have done it any way he wanted. You know, when I was a little boy, I, I really thought that my mom got pregnant, gave birth to this man, and uh, then raised him up, which was my dad, and then had the rest of us. I just thought that's how it worked. And some of you ladies are thinking, that felt like how it works. I'm raising my husband. Don't bump your husband. God could, or God could have had us born couples. You know, the principle of design, because there is a, the, 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 that's why they say, Christianity is the mother of science. There would be no science without a Christian worldview. This thing that Christianity and science are at odds with each other is rubbish. There would be no science without Christianity because Christianity says there is a designer, there is an all-wise all God that created something with a purpose and if it, it has a specific design. It's not random, there's a purpose behind it. So we can reverse engineer and begin to study this thing to get back to some, you know, think ourselves down to some conclusions. And we need to do the same, not just with science, but with theology. Why did God create woman the way he did? I can come, and I, believe me, I've spent some time thinking on this. I can come to no other conclusion than this. God's goal in taking the woman out of the man and then presenting her back to the man in a form he would be highly attracted to and say, now, figure out a way to wrestle through your differing opinions to become one the only, reason, the, only thing I can, the only conclusion I can come to is that God was after oneness through mutual sacrifice. Before Adam was alone, God said it's not good for him to be alone. So then he brought Eve to him and he forced him to become, re-become one with something he was already one with that he'd separated. And so now it was going to demand mutual sacrifice. He was going to have to deny himself. And every husband should say, amen. <laughs> Boy, you guys are not with me this morning. You're leaving me hanging out to dry, gentlemen. I'm trying to help you. I'm, I'm going to do my best to help you this morning. So you need to help me along here. Okay, thank you, Roger. <laughs> mutual sacrifice. We have to deny ourselves 
to become one because that's what God was after. What was not good, Adam was alone. Adam had a relationship with God. He could have some relationship with the rest of creation. But this intimacy that God was inviting him into would demand that he would deny himself. And that only increased in the fall. So God's goal was oneness through mutual sacrifice. So that Adam would have to get outside of himself and serve somebody else. And that's what God was after. That's why his aloneness was not good. Because alone you can only develop so far. Matter of fact, you are physiologically wired. You are chemically wired for relationship. You're wired for a we and not a me. And you will languish, you will remain undeveloped if you remain isolated. God is brilliant and relationships are the safeguard to the the mistaken validation that you will have over your weird, weird views on things. You, when, when you're left alone, you can think some really weird things and be convinced you're right. But when you bring that into a relationship, it will be quickly exposed for the lie that it is. And so we need relationships. We need relationships to call what God has put in us out of us. If you've been around here more than a couple years, you've heard me refer to the book that was written in the 70s called uh, Naked Nomads, The Single Man in America, written by a guy named George Gilder. I think he was a sociologist who was also a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. Interesting book. And he does this study on single men. And, and studying single men, he found that single men are at the top of every negative statistic you would not want to be listed on. Incarceration, mental institutionalization, and a long list of other problems. Unemployment. And the older they get and not be married, the worse it gets. The more likely they are to be on these statistics. Why? Because it's not good for a man to be alone. Now, let me just pause here. There is a spiritual gift. It's one that people rarely pray for. There's two spiritual gifts that are rarely petitioned for, and that is martyrdom. It's the gift you only use once. And <laughs> celibacy, uh, you know, the gift to be fulfilled alone. And, and that is a gift. And those people become a gift to others because they're, they're able to give themselves uh, you know, to others to a greater degree. Because Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, a single man is concerned with how he may please the Lord. But a married man is concerned with how he may please his wife, comma, and his interests are divided. Marriage by nature will divide the heart of a man because he is, even though he has a heart to serve God, he has this thing that he's concerned about his wife. And it's by design. It's not a, it's not a bad thing, but the fact is it will diminish the ability for you to give yourself fully to the things of God in, in externally. I mean, hey, my marriage is the thing of God. God. God asked me a question. It was probably 20 years ago now. He asked me one day, he said, Dave, what, what would it matter if you died? I'm like, whoa, do you got some plans, Lord? 
And I, I, I just started processing. I thought, you know, started going through my life. Well, at the time, I was, I was working here, volunteering here as an associate pastor. I thought, well, you know, they'd miss me because I do some teaching over there. But I've been around long enough to know that if I, if I left in a couple of weeks, they'd, who was that guy? That guy, you know, that I used to have, a, have color in my beard. The guy with the dark beard. Who was he? I don't remember his name. I, they, I'd fill in. Uh, Teen Challenge, I was the director at the time, and I thought, you know, there's things I know to do that others don't know to do around here because I've been doing it for so long, but they, that would fill in. And then I thought about my family, and it just hit me that my wife and my children would never recover. God would make it up, but the fact is their lives would be altered, and the Lord said, there's your priority. That's a kingdom thing. No one can replace me as a husband and father. But that truth must be held in tension with the other truth that Paul writes very clearly in 1 Corinthians 7. Marriage becomes a, a, a distraction from your, your relationship with God. Not in a negative sense, but it, it keeps you from being able to fully give yourself. When I was single, I would stay up till the wee hours of the morning just reading and praying and seeking God and fasting was easier because I didn't come home with food being cooked in the house. And my family hates when I fast. Oh, you know, it's like it's always a downer. It goes, Dad, you know, I'm trying to look happy. But, you know, it's, it, there's that tension. So it's, it's a reality that this, it, we have to give of ourselves, and that our interests are divided. Let me just say this, and I'm going to preach to the youth for a minute. Guys, every male, look at me. Yes. All right, here's, here's what the word says. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A single man is concerned with how we may please the Lord. That is the scripturally defined purpose of your single years. Single-mindedness. The purpose of our single years is to establish single-minded devotion to the Lord. Your interests are not divided. And one of the dangers of our culture that is so hypersexualized and in, in this thing that you've got to have, that a young guy has to have a girl on his arm or he's not really a man, that, all of that stuff works against the purpose of the single years. A lot of guys go from mom to girlfriend to wife. And they've never had single years. And the purpose of the single years is to wean you from a mother figure. Let me say it again. It's to wean you from mama. Because there's a whole lot of guys that are just looking for a mama. Was it Wellington Boone wrote a book to husbands? And it says, I am not your mama. <laughs> but there's truth to this. As a, as a man, we, you know, we're, we're birthed from a woman. The umbilical cord is cut, but we return to her breast for nourishment. And then there's this weaning process. We call it weaning. Well, the physical weaning process is much shorter than the emotional one. The emotional weaning process where we learn to become a man in and of ourselves and not need a woman to make us feel whole. I used to tell the Teen Challenge guys. As a matter of fact, I went out to Teen Challenge a week ago, uh, Friday night. And a guy, he was 19 when he went through the program. He's now 39. And he said, Dave, do you remember this phrase? And I laugh. I said, I just told someone that. I don't have any new material. I said, I just told someone that <laughs> the other day. Here's the phrase. He remembered it from way back then. If you need her, 
You can't lead her. You have got to come to the point where you are okay in and of yourself. You don't need some relationship to define you. Because otherwise, I used to tell the guys at Teen Challenge, a man can approach a woman in two ways. He can approach her as a man and ask her for her hand in marriage and be upfront about it. Or he can approach her as a little boy and play on her maternal heartstrings. And try to, try to elicit those motherly feelings because what he's really looking for is someone to take care of him. And ladies, you need to recognize, you single ladies, you need to recognize when that guy comes a calling, run! You don't, matter of fact, come on. That, that's better preaching than I'm, I'm getting response here. You, we need men who are whole in and of themselves. They're settled in their identity. We need that. When I got saved, I knew this was Jesus. I was a 19-year-old. Well, I was 18 when I got saved. I got out of Teen Challenge at 19 years old. And just a few months before I got out, the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And I knew, as a 19-year-old kid, I didn't think this way. That had to be Jesus. And this is what he told me. You are not to date until you are completely satisfied without a woman in your life. I'm like, that has to be Jesus or the devil. Because that ain't me. I was tempted to think it was the devil, but then he explained it, and I thought, that's got to be God. And what he said, he said, because otherwise you will try to fulfill with the woman what only I can fill, and I cannot bless your idolatry. I didn't understand what I'm talking about right now. I didn't understand that when 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, a single man is concerned with how he may please the Lord. I didn't understand that that was the purpose of the single years. I didn't understand that God could have made, had me born married as a couple. We could come out together. Woo, twins. You know, we're married and we, you know. No. What he does is we are totally dependent on a mother and a father and we develop, but to be healthy, we become independent before we then become dependable. And if you don't go from independence to indep from dependence to independence, you'll never be dependable. You'll just be dependable, dependent. And you're going to look for some lady to meet your needs and you're going to frustrate her. That's why in the biblical story, what God did is he first gave Adam a job to do. He put him in the garden and gave him a job and he had a job before he had a wife. Now that's good preaching. You got to have a job before you have a wife. And I'm not talking just a job that pays. I'm talking about you need to know the purpose to which you are called. Because the, the scripturally defined role of a woman is a woman is a help meet. She's to come alongside and aid the husband in what he's called to. And together they're to accomplish the purpose of God because they become one. And God has a one purpose for that couple in that marriage. They're to complete. But if a man doesn't know what he's called to, he's going to frustrate the woman. How is she going to help him when he doesn't have a clue? And so we really need these single years. And I, I am, I'm really concerned about our culture. This thing that, you know, you meet a, a kid in fourth grade. Yeah, we're going steady. It's my girlfriend. Yeah, we're a thang. You know, and they, they've never not been a thang. They're fourth grade, fifth grade, 10th grade, college. And they've always had a relationship. We need to have our single years. We're saying, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn 
to find my identity in God and in myself. And when I am whole, so I, I, the Lord spoke to me, you're not today. And I said, okay, Lord, I, I, I hear you. And then after a while, he said, I don't ever want you dating. I'm going to bring your wife to you. Now, God is gracious. He'd have told me that, right, coming out of Teen Challenge. I don't think I'd have been able to handle it. But he incrementally <laughs> led me along. And he said, he said, I'm going to bring you your wife. You just pursue me. And so God did that. And here's the thing. When, when he did bring, he told, when I met my wife, we met at a frozen yogurt shop. And I remember I was, I was talking about theology. She thought I was weird. But when I, because I, I had this burning question, did God die on the cross? I know Jesus, the human, but did God die? And what does that mean? And I'm like engaging all this. And they're like, whatever, dude, just order some yogurt. But it was burning within me, you know. And uh, she was just looking like weirdo. But she laughed at my jokes. And I thought, oh, this is rare. I mean, she's got to be marrying material. If she can, you know, appreciate my sense of humor, this is, this is a possibility. But I noticed she was always at the prayer meetings. And one day, after I probably knew her about a month, the Lord said, that's your wife. Treat her like she deserves. And I've been trying to do that ever since. And I thought, well, I guess I better get to know her. I could, you know. Before I tell her, hey, God told me you're my wife. I really freak her out. I mean, let me just tell you, guys... If God tells you that, don't tell her. Go through the process. And ladies, if God tells you that, don't tell him. Because, okay, I've been preaching to the guys. Okay, let, here's the ladies. Ladies, the reason you need the single years is because the thing you're going to need most in marriage is produced before marriage. That's true for both of us. Let me say it again. The biggest thing you're going to need in marriage, guys and gals, you're going to be, it's going to be produced in you before marriage if you do it God's way. And what is that? For guys, it's, I'm going to be the leader. I am going to, I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to approach her as a man. I'm going to be the initiator. For a lady, it's, I'm going to trust God. You think, well, pastor, how are you coming to the conclusions that's the biggest need? Well, number one, my wife's been married to me. I've seen she really needs to trust God to live with me. But I have a scripture for it. First Peter in chapter, I want to say it's chapter 4, Peter begins to talk about the marching orders for a wife in marriage. Now, both for men and women, you can reverse engineer the command and begin to get insight into what the struggle of the, that specific gender is. What do I mean by that? There are two primary passages on marriage in the New Testament. It is Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 5, both passages, by the way, one written by Paul, the other by Peter, both of them begin addressing the wife before the husband. And some teachers have speculated, and I think they may be onto something, the reason that they do that is because before addressing the position of authority in the marriage, that the husband is the head of the wife, the position of marriage, he wants to address the position of greatest influence. When I was a single guy going to this church down in Louisiana, I remember the, the pastor's wife got up and in her southern drawl one Sunday morning she said this, my husband's the head of the family, but I'm the neck. And I turn him any way I please. <laughs> and I, and you know, I'm like, okay, where's the punchline? She was serious. And she was right. 
A woman has such a tremendous influence in a man's life, in marriage. And God gave you to that man, and vice versa, so that you could fuel the purposes of God within one another. But if we interact in the wrong way, the relationship that can become the greatest catalyst towards us becoming all that we're called to be can actually become the greatest hindrance from us becoming all that we could be. We can be the greatest blessing or the greatest hardship our spouse has ever had. And it's up to us. We get to choose. And so, in this passage in 1 Peter, he says this. Well, let's turn there. Let's, let me read it to you. So you know I'm not just making this up. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 3. <laughs> chapter 4 was, Therefore Christ suffered in his body. Arm yourself also with the same attitude. I'm not preaching on marriage. That was chapter 3. Sorry, guys. Chapter 3. Matter of fact, turn back to chapter 2 so you get the context of this. And then we'll get into chapter 3. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then he introduces this new subject, okay? Verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. And in this book, you can see that idea, that concept throughout the book. Peter is saying that your behavior should so affect those around you that by your behavior you will convict and convince and shut the mouth of those who are detractors from the Christian faith. That your behavior is a witness. It's all through this book. Now he's going to begin to talk about submission. So he says, for the Lord's sake, submit to every authority uh, instituted among men. Look at verse 18. Slaves. So now he's going to uniquely speak to this group of people that are slaves. And we can pull some principles out of that. You could say that, that would be, there's some messages we can get for employees. But it was specifically to those who were uh, in, in servitude to work off a debt. Look at verse 18. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your master, not to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pay of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. So catch what he's saying. He said, if you find yourself in a unique situation where you're under an authority figure and they are not kind and considerate, they are harsh, but you know you answer to them in legitimate authority, in a legitimate scenario of authority, he said, submit to them, not just to the ones who are nice to you, but do it out of reverent fear to God because you're conscious of God. And so that is a key. One of the keys to submission to authority is to realize God sees this. God has created this thing called authority, this authority structure. Paul will say in Romans 13, if you don't submit to authority, you're not rebelling against those people. You're literally rebelling against God because God is the orchestrator of this structure called authority. 
Matter of fact, we need to really dive into this in the future. And I'm not going to take a lot of time this morning, but this is one of the most needed messages in the church today. We have lost the concept of spiritual authority and submission. Not only exercising spiritual authority, we like that part, but being under spiritual authority. And one cannot be without the other. You cannot have authority without being under authority because authority comes from above. And if you're in rebellion from your authority, you're going to forfeit the authority you were supposed to flow in. And we need to understand that authority, these relationships, uh, matter of fact, there are three types of relationships. We're talking about the need for healthy relationships. That's, That's our subject matter in this series. There are three types of relationships we all need to have. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but your relationships are a mirror or a window window into your soul. The, The people that you're attracted to and that are attracted to you are indicative of your level of emotional health. You're not gonna be attracted to, you're not gonna feel comfortable around really healthy people if you're not and vice versa. And people aren't going to be attracted to you and want to hang with you. There is a sense in which we pick up on things in people's lives unconsciously and we settle into those relationships. And so the best thing you can do is work on your emotional, spiritual health. Get healthy. Get whole. Get healed of your past woundedness. Make sure that you're dealing with the past and not bringing it with you. Because the more healthy you are in the present, the, the greater your likelihood of having healthy relationships will be in the future. And there's three levels of relationship. There is relationship with authority, people that are legitimately over you in different scenarios. And again, we can't get too much into this. I'm getting too much into it more than I intended. But we need to understand authority is real. We need to submit to it, but it also has parameters. Okay? That's the safeguard. It has parameters. There have been seasons in the body of Christ where the body of Christ has taken this concept of authority too far. Some of you will be familiar with the the 70s, the the shepherding movement, or it was also known as the discipleship movement. And some great men of God got a little into error there and really paid a a heavy price for that error because it, it caught on. And they were preaching legitimate truth but took it outside of its boundaries. And so it came to the point where people were asking permission of their pastor to go on vacation. They were asking, hey, would it be okay if I bought a new car? I'm going to tell you, I, I, I have a hard enough time running my own life. I don't need to run yours. Now, if this is your church home, I have, a, I have a level of spiritual authority over your life that you can choose to give me or you can choose to withhold from me. And when you're in this building, I have to have authority over you because I'm responsible for this environment. I remember there was a young woman that we were dealing with that was doing things that we told her, do not do that here. And so finally I told her, you are no longer allowed to come up front and worship. If you want to attend here, I want you to sit in your chair and worship from there. At which they left the church, the family. And then they came back when we had a special speaker. And she came up and she was worshiping up here. And I went up to her and very kindly said, oh, it's good to see you. However, I've told you, you're not allowed to worship. She said, well, you're not my pastor anymore. I said, I am when you're here. When you're in this house, because I have responsibility for this environment. And I'm going to answer to God for it. I'm going to protect this environment. 
Now, she can choose to go somewhere else and if she d doesn't feel like she can follow my leadership, then she probably needs to go somewhere else. Either adjust your perspective or your attitude or if you're convinced it's right, go find a pastor you can submit to. But there's parameters. I don't have any right to call and talk to her husband and say, hey, by the way, I don't want your wife worshiping in this way in your household. That's not my authority. That's out of the realm of my authority. And that gets real dysfunctional real fast when we overstep our boundaries. All authority has boundaries. So we have relationship with authority. We have relationship with subordinates. There are people that you're going to mentor, that you're going to pour into, that maybe you have a level of authority over uh, legally. Maybe you're an employer. Maybe you're a pastor. Maybe, you know, fill in the blank. But you have authority and you are responsible for certain environments that they function in and you have to exercise authority over them. And then there's this third one, which is peers. So there's authority figures, peers, and subordinates. Or there are mentors Friends and people you're mentoring. They call them mentees, but that just sounds weird to me. It sounds like a breath mint, a mentee. Uh, you know, somebody that you're pouring into. And those three types of relationships will all give us insight into our life. And here's the thing. Most of us are able to function pretty healthy in one of those three and maybe even two of those three, but our issues will begin to show up in one of those planes. I've known people that can function really good as a friend and really be a good overseer, but they can't come under authority. Or I've known people that can, they can really come under authority and they can really exercise authority, but they don't know how to operate when there's, there's not these, this hierarchical thing. They, they just don't know how to relate with people. That is indicative, indicative of an issue. And we need to allow the, our relationships to be a window into our soul and say, okay, God, I realize there's something going on here. And so we need to allow those relationships to be inroads that God, because one of the reasons it wasn't good for Adam to be alone is Adam alone wasn't going to have his issues provoked. When I was alone, a single guy, I didn't have an anger problem. I was a really easy guy to hang out with. Because if you got on my nerves, I'd just go home and be with me. And I, me was a pretty easy person to live with. Until there was another me living with me. And I was tempted to blame the other me, but it was me. Okay? Because God was using that to provoke my selfishness. And so we need to, we need to allow relationships to instruct us. The context of relationship is usually where the sin issues of your life will come up. You're going to be hard-pressed to imagine a sin that isn't relational in nature. In some level, you're going to violate relationship. And so let's allow those things to speak to us. Let's go after this. Don't be a person who grows on accident. There's a lot of believers that just grow on accident. Well, they hear a message and they turn on the radio and they hear, maybe they hear a podcast and, and it's just kind of they're stumbling along and they just happen to come across some truths that, that and they end up applying to some degree because they were convinced. Or you can be real intentional about this thing and grow quickly and become all that God's called you to be so that he can have the glory of all that he purchased at Calvary. So let's go after this thing. So, back to 1 Peter. It says this. Listen to what he says. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake, slaves. Then he says in verse 21, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you. And he gives Christ as an example of a man under authority. He went before the Sanhedrin, submitted to their decision, even though they violated their own laws. And it says because he was conscious of God. 
He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Again, in this, in this scenario of just struggling with submitting to authority that was abusing their authority, he looked up to God and he said, God, I don't trust them, but I trust you to work through them for your purposes. And that's why he could submit to this, this kangaroo court that drove him to Calvary and it became God's greatest victory in human history. But he had to entrust himself to God. And on the heels of that is where Peter says this, verse 1, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands. Now, ladies, this isn't me. This is Peter, okay? Don't kill the messenger. Wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And the reason Peter says, I, I joke around about this passage, but let me, let me be serious here. The reason Peter says this in this passage is because there is a real temptation for a woman being married to a fallen man to begin to try to convince him with words. It's a nice way of saying nagging. To tell him what he needs to do. And if your husband is doing what he needs to do because you told him, he's not really doing it for the right reason. I'm not saying that you don't have a voice at all. And I'm not saying that you live in an abusive situation and just put up with it. Okay, I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the normal dynamics of marriage. So he goes on to say this. He says, when they, that the, your, your husband may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Uh, I believe it's the NAS says not only from those things. You're not saying you can't wear jewelry or wear makeup. Uh, rather, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit which is of great sight, worth in the sight of God. A gentle, quiet spirit. What is Paul talking about? He's saying that's the thing that will have the effect on your husband, on the man in your life. What is a gentle, quiet spirit? It's not a personality thing. It's not, oh, she's quiet, so she's going to have a great effect, and this lady is more naturally boisterous in her personality. That's not what he's, he's talking about. A gentle, quiet spirit. It, it's the idea of that tranquility of spirit that comes out of trusting God. Now that tranquil spirit may manifest itself as someone who's the life of the party. Or it may manifest itself as someone who's very quiet. That is personality. But the, the issue is that tranquility of spirit. It's, that it, it's because it, that trusts God. Look at verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past, and here's the operative phrase, who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. Literally, by putting their hope in God, they adorned themselves and made themselves beautiful. Because in putting their hope in God, their, their uh, submission, their attitude, they, the tranquility of their heart was not invested in their husband's ability to make good decisions. To do everything right. It was, I'm going to put my hope in God and I'm going to honor my husband for the position he carries. And in so doing, God gave the woman the key that will unlock the greatness in her husband's heart. And that is respect and admiration. And if you will treat that a man in that way, the vast majority of men will step up. It's like prophesying. You're speaking to their spirit and what you'll get is their spirit. You're calling them into their destiny. Or 
And this is true of all relationships. You can speak to their flesh and what you'll get is flesh. And I'm not letting men off the hook. Gentlemen, if you have lived your life in such a way that it makes it hard for your wife to trust God with your leadership, you have created your own mess. And so don't, don't say, well, if she'll just do this. The fact is, this passage says that a wife can have tremendous effect on a husband. But the, the, the fact remains that a husband have, can have a tremendous effect on a wife. I can make it easy for my wife to trust God to work through me, or I can make it really hard for her. And if I make it hard for her, I have pushed her to the edge of temptation where the tranquil waters are hard to maintain because she begins to be anxious. Oh my, is he going to make another dumb decision? Is he going to spend the rent money on a new boat? Or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. Or is he going to take care of me? Are we going to live in such a way that it makes it easy for her to trust God? And ladies, are you going to live in such a way that a man's desire is to serve you because of the respect he receives? Again, we can become the greatest catalyst, the greatest propulsion in one another's lives to launch us into serving God, or we can become the tether on the belt loop that makes it really hard to run after God because of the behavior of the person we fitched our life to. The good news is this. It just takes one to begin to turn the corner. A woman who says, I'm going to align myself with heaven and I'm going to change this man. Or a man who says, I'm going to align myself with heaven and change this woman. And now, let me just state, I am not saying that this is, you know, hey, if you will do these things, that it's foolproof and then you're not going to have any problems. And if you do have problems, it's because you're a failure. I'm not saying that. But we must not use the exception as the rule. Let's look at the, what the word says. And marriage is God's greatest discipleship plan. The book, Naked Nomads. The conclusion it came to was this. It can be summed up in one sentence. That a man, for a man to become all that he was intended to be, the vast majority, those that don't have the gift of celibacy, they demand the imposition of a woman and children upon their life to harness their capabilities, and become all that they're called to be. And that is why the vast majority of time, it's the married men who rise to the surface in leadership in companies and in churches and so forth. Now, there are exceptions. God gives the gift of celibacy. But most men need people needing them. In the second chapter of the book, it's a funny chapter, he's, he, he says, I, he was a single man at the time, he said, I'm writing this from a hospital bed. He said, because I was, I was finishing my book in a, in a hotel that had a balcony overseeing a cliff. And he said, as a single guy, I take risks that a married guy wouldn't. He said, I, I wanted to see what the cliff looked like, so I climbed out on the edge of my balcony and fell. And then he said this. He said, because a man, a married man, is in, he's rooted in the past and invested in the future, and therefore he doesn't take the foolish risks that a single man does. There used to be some really dumb things I did. I do still do some, but not as many. Because I'm married. My kids need me. I, I don't have the luxury of doing those dumb things. i got to be here. I have a wife that needs me. And so it's the imposition that, that harnesses a man's gifts and callings. And, and uh, see, it's not good for a man to be alone. 
But you need to have an alone, some alone years so that you are healed and whole in and of yourself. There was a time in my life where I really thought I might be single the rest of my life. And I was okay with that. I'd asked the Lord, I said, God, put to sleep, put me to sleep, put that desire to be married asleep in me like you put Adam to sleep. And it did. It went to sleep for a while. And then one day it woke up and I saw her at the yogurt shop. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it was awake. And so, this relationship, it's not good for a man to be alone. God took the masculine and the feminine, two genders, two genders, just two, male and female, just two. The image of God is invested in the masculine. It says, in the image of God, he created him, and then he took out the feminine. And, the, and male and female, he created them. That's how the text is. In the image of God, he created him, comma, male and female, he created them. He went from a him to a them. And what made the him a them is he took the feminine out of him and made him into a them. And the feminine and the masculine are both found in the nature of God. They're both created in God's image. There is a facet of God's nature we will never know without looking at woman. And there's a facet of God's nature we will never know without looking to man. And if you are, if you are confused about your gender, I'm not here to condemn you, to make fun of you, to beat up on you. My heart breaks for you, and I'm here to tell you there is healing in the name of Jesus. And it's most often a complicated process, but God can get you there. But you will never be what you're called to be until that foundational aspect of your identity is settled. It, because anything but that causes a deep-seated sense of rejection. Often you'll see in the, the trans community and even the homosexual community that the hyper Examples of masculine and feminine adopted by the same gender. That the, the women who adopt the identity of a man are more masculine than most of the guys in this room. And the, the men who adopt a, a, an identity of femininity are more feminine. That's why they're attracted to, you know, share and people like that, this over-the-top kind of femininity. It's because there's this deep-seated self-rejection that grasps for something. And there's healing in the Lord. And I'm telling you, what we need is tremendous compassion and wisdom and the power of God. We need to be those who love the best and that we can reach in and help people out of that type of lifestyle. But make no mistake about it, the scripture is clear. Male and female, he created them. And at the foundation of our identity, the first thing said about you was it's a boy or it's a girl. And they came to that conclusion by looking at your genitals. The doctor knew. They didn't have to say, well, it's, it's got male genitals, but we'll see. They knew. It's a man or it's a woman. And when someone is severed from that, the sense of self-rejection the devastating sense of self-rejection, it, 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 that affects everything about them. 
the foundation of your identity is as a human being and as the gender in which you occupy. I am personally convinced, and we'll close with this. Go ahead and stand. Can you smell the chili? I, I know, man, this is, this is intense, man, to have to fight against that for a 45-minute sermon. I am convinced that your spirit is either male or female. We will be male and female in heaven. We won't be given in marriage, but we will be male and female in heaven. We w- there, there is reason to believe there are male and female angels. And so this, it's part of God, the template of God's nature. And there's something in a woman that of the nature of God that we can only get through relationship with them. And now I'm not talking just marriage. I'm talking about relationship. There's a perspective. That's why I'm so grateful that we have both genders on our team as a staff. And there's a perspective the ladies bring that the men don't and vice versa. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask God that you would Lord, that you would equip us as a church. Just put your hands up before the Lord. Father, we're asking for great wisdom. We're asking that you would equip us as a church to be people skilled in wisdom, walking in the power of God. And Lord, saturated in love. Lord, that we would become the answer to those struggling with these deep-seated issues in this culture. Lord, we would become a beacon of hope, a safe place. Lord, help us to recognize these struggles for what they are, but have overwhelming love for the individual struggling. And Lord, I ask God that you would create healthy relationships in this house. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.